Well, man, I'm so excited to share tonight that I almost don't know where to start. <clears throat> but I'll go ahead and tell you where we'll start. We'll start in two places. Um, Matthew 5, which is where we're, we're currently at in the Sermon on the Mount teaching series called Climb. Um, so go ahead and turn there, but also turn to Psalm 62. I'm going to read that really quick, and then we'll come back to that at the end. And there's a few more scriptures that we'll look at. Um, I'm going to read this out of the, NI, uh, the NAS, which is what a lot of times I, I teach and preach out of and study out of. Um, but I'm going to kind of insert a few other uh, translations that might be in your Bible. Okay, This is Psalm 62. Go ahead and turn to, to Matthew 5, but we'll come back to that. So you can just put your finger there or something. Psalm 62. And it says, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him, uh, from him is my salvation. Now, some of your Bibles, some of your versions say, my, fi- my soul finds rest in God alone. In him alone is my salvation. My soul finds rest. Everybody say rest in God alone. From him is my salvation. Some of your versions may say, in him alone is my salvation. It goes on to say, He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Uh, Down in verse 5, it says, My soul waits in silence for God only. He says it again. He's repeating himself. It must be an important statement for him. Your translation may say again, My soul finds rest in God alone. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation my stronghold, I shall not be shaken. Verse 7 says, on, my God, uh, on God, my salvation and my glory rest. Did you hear that? On the Lord, on God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. And then in verse 8, he, he says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. And it ends verse 8 with saying, God is a refuge for us. The reason I want to pause on that is because last week uh, we were on, we were on um, Matthew 5. In fact, go ahead and turn there. We were on Matthew 5, and we're going to stay on the same portion, and I'm going to actually kind of finish up some thoughts that I left out last week. And so we're not necessarily moving forward in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pause right here and kind of finish up the topic that we were talking about. If you remember, if you remember, the topic was about these Pharisees, and we'll focus mainly on, we looked at 17 through 20, chapter 5, 17 through 20, but I'm going to look again at this one right here. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, just before that in verse 17, he said, I didn't come, away, come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. And he talks about how important the law is and how um, every, every word, every little notation, everything in the law is is very important. The reason it's important is because God um, set it in motion, put it in motion, and it points ahead to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do away with that. I'm going to fulfill it. And then he talks about how anybody that tries to take away from the law or um, mess with the law is actually, you know, they're in for some, some, a rude awakening. And, and he talks about that. And then the last thing he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even see the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things we mentioned last week is that, um, the problem the Pharisees had with the law is a lack of godly, true, godly interpretation. And they were making up all kinds of things that the law said. And we talked about how, um, starting in verse 21, really pretty much for the next um, chapter and a half or so, he gives an explanation on that. 
What I want to do is continue with what we talked about last week, is that um, just like the Pharisees were leading the way in, the people were following these Pharisees in adhering to the law, um, certainly the law, that, the law of Moses, the law that God did institute. The Pharisees were just misinterpreting them. But remember that the Pharisees also put, what was it, like 430 laws of their own out there because people weren't hearing God. People weren't experiencing God. The prophets weren't speaking anymore. And so everybody was wigging out a little bit. And so the religious leader said, you know what, we've got to find something that we can do to make us feel like we're connected to God. I know what. Let's establish a bunch of rules that we can follow because if we can do that, we will earn that righteousness, that favor, all that stuff with God. And so they, we call it, it's called the Pharisaical Laws. There's like 430 something, 432 maybe. Ridiculous laws. For example, when Jesus said, take up your mat and walk. The guy was lame. Jesus said, you're not going to be lame anymore. Get your mat up and take off. But the Pharisees were like, oh my word. You just broke a Pharisaical law. You're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. That's like saying I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't mow my yard tomorrow because it's Sunday. That's ridiculous, isn't it? So they were, they were creating their own laws, and then they were misinterpreting the ones that law, uh, God did instigate, uh, instigate, the laws that God did put in motion. And we talked about how they were leading the people in a very works-oriented faith. A faith that was based upon what they did. Um, the big argument that we talked about last week in Romans 3 and 4, and we'll look at it again for just a second, was the idea of, of circumcision, that people had to be circumcised if they were going to be right with God. And Paul was saying in chapters 3 and, and especially in 4, is like, listen, yes, Abraham was circumcised, but he wasn't found faithful in God's sight because of his circumcision, because of the cutting of his flesh. Then he was actually found faithful he found favor with God. It's the way he says it is, he was made, he was, um, uh, righteousness was accredited to him before his circumcision, before that, that, that deed, or before that thing. It was before that. It was his faith that initiated God's favor, not the works or these different things. And so Paul is trying to tell the people, listen, you've got to stop trying to adhere to all these things, especially the law, which I came to fulfill to adhere to all these things to be made right with God. It's, a, it's become a bad habit of my people, of your people, of us. And the thing is, is it's become a pretty bad habit still. I wouldn't say become. It has remained a bad habit within the Christian culture. And a part of it is because we will substitute very quickly a real relationship with God based on faith, based on trust, based on belief, we will substitute that very quickly with a bunch of stuff, with a bunch of works, with a bunch of deeds, with a bunch of rules and regulations. And they can be anything from ridiculous things like I shouldn't drink or I shouldn't dance or I shouldn't wear a dress above my ankles, you know, whatever. Ridiculous things. I mean, if I'm going to wear a dress, it's going to come up to my knees. You know, I tell you right now. It's a wonder I'm not Scottish. God, I'd be wearing a kilt right now. And bagpipes. So those things are ridiculous. But even, even little things about how long my quiet time has to be. How many minutes, hours I must read the Bible. How many chapters I've got to read every day. How many minutes I have to pray. Listen, and I think God is, is pleased when we pray an hour. That's not what I'm saying. But when we try to make those things the substance of our relationship with the Lord, I think the Lord's like, 
Man, you need to go back and read Romans 3 and 4, bro. In fact, let's look at it real quick. And remember, we read that out of the New Living Translation, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go there again with that. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I, would, I want to point out a few things. In, in chapter 3, verse 22, Romans chapter 3, verse 22, it says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, I can't say that enough. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. If you're trying, and this is a little bit of a recap from last week, but if you're trying to do something else to win that favor, that relationship, that um, we are right with God, there's no other way to do it other than simple faith in Jesus Christ. Down in 27, it says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Because he talks about how it is that we were made right with God by the work of, of Christ on the cross and all that. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. Okay? Um, In chapter 4, I'm going to read this first part of it. It says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? In other words, what was his experience? What did Abraham, the father of our faith... You know, Father Abraham, all that stuff. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the founder of our faith. What did he experience? What was his um, experience with this? Verse uh, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2 says, If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. I know that it is not our intention, and maybe we don't even do it literally, but when our mentality is, that what we do earns the righteousness, the favor with God. We may not manifest that or express that or show it, but in our heart we do reserve the right to boast about what we've done to be made right with God. Again, well, I'm not, we probably would never say that. Man, you should see what I did this week. That's why God loves me. What did you do? <laughs> Now, we don't vocalize that, but there is that little, there's that thing, that battle. It's kind of a flesh-spirit battle that goes in our hearts that we say that. We, again, we wouldn't vocalize it, but it is there. He said there's no reason to boast. If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And it goes down in verse uh, 10. How did this happen? And then we answer this question. Was he counted as righteous before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And it's a great question. I love the way the NLT phrases that. Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? And we talked about how it was before. Before he was circumcised. Before there was that sign of his faith. Before this this um, cutting of the flesh that represents several different things in Scripture, but one of the things is the work of the flesh, that you had to do something to be, um, to be seen or to be made right or, or whatever. No, he was made right before. It was his faith. The circumcision was a sign that he had found favor with God. Do you guys see that? And it's kind of like with us. Um, we talked about how the... How the uh, circumcision points to a couple things. I don't know if we actually talked about this last week, but one thing it points to is baptism. 
You know, what is the one thing that we're commanded to do after we come to know Jesus? To make it public, to make a profession of faith by being baptized. That's a sign to, the, to letting everybody know, hey, I've made this decision. But we also talked about how it is a, it is a pointing ahead to the, Holy, uh, to the Holy Spirit. This was a sign that you belong to me, Abraham. This is how people will know you belong to me. In the New Testament, the sign is um, the fruits of the Spirit. They will know you by my love, which is the first of the Holy, uh, fruits of the Spirit. And so, again, kind of recapping that. And then he ends with, um, well, I won't go into that right now. But what I want to do right now is I want to kind of refer back to one more thing because the idea of having a works-oriented faith is it can kill us really quick. It can, like, suck the life out of us. And going back to Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. Okay, this version. Um, sorry, I got a couple of different Bibles up here. This one says, My soul waits in silence for God only. Some of y'all may say, My soul finds rest in God alone. First of all, you got to know that the, the soulish area of us is our, is our emotions, it's our heart, it's, our, it's the way we think, it's the way we reason, it's the way we. Um, express our worship to God. My soul, the, the, the deepest parts of who I am, finds rest only in God. And what we try to do is we try to um, uh, create that sense of rest or that favor or that righteousness, because that's really what rest is, to be able to sit before the Lord and have no care in the world is to know that you're in right relationship with Him. So what we try to do is we try to fill that rest void with other kinds of things. And I'm telling you, and, and I said this last week, and this is really what I'm going to hammer on this week, is that Jesus is the one that has provided that. He goes on to say what? He alone is my salvation. Your salvation doesn't come from God. Uh, yes, it does. Your salvation doesn't come from your works. Can we edit that out? No. It does come from God. It doesn't come from your works. It doesn't come from your perfection of religious duties and all that kind of stuff. And I want to show you something. And I've taught a little bit of this before um, in a different way, but I'm probably going to add something that I've never added before. Um, I'll read it out of this one. Go ahead and turn real quick to Genesis 15. Since we're talking about Abraham, since the question was raised in Romans 3, how did Abraham handle this? How did this flow for Abraham? I want to show you. Most of us know the story. I'm going to go ahead and, and share it again. Some of you may not have, so I think it's worth explaining. In chapter 15, God is promising Abram a son before Abraham's name was Abraham, it was Abram. And he's making that covenant. He's talking about all these things. And he's making all these promises. <clears throat> and then before we read this part, you need to know that the way that covenants were made back then, and maybe even still parts of that world today, I don't know, but the way that they would make a covenant, whether it was maybe a marriage or the buying of selling something or some sort of partnership or a deal, a typical way of, of establishing a covenant um, wasn't necessarily a handshake. You know, what they would do is they would, gra- they would take animals and they would cut them in two. And they would put one side on one side, uh, one part of the animal on one side, and another part of the animal on another side. And they would have this little ceremony. I'll talk about it in a second. But look, that's exactly what God is telling him to do. Um, in chapter 15, verse 9, um, actually, you know what? Back up. Um, 
In verse 6, it says, Then he believed in the Lord, talking about Abraham. And that's what really got this whole thing going for Abraham. He believed in the Lord. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's where that came from, that God accounted it to him, his belief, as righteousness. In verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, or of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. And then Abraham said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Okay, that's a good question. How can I know that this will happen? This all sounds really good, but how can I know? Everybody say, how can I know that this will happen? There's some deep voices in here tonight. I don't know if it's you men or if the ladies have a cold or what. It's like, how can I know? Um, so he says, how can I no, and I really feel like God said, man, that's a good question. And I think that's the question that people still struggle with that today. Not just their salvation. Some people struggle with that question on their salvation. But if not their salvation, at least their sanctification and walking out and then the things that God promises in life. How can I know that God really loves me? How can I know that he's for me and not against me? How can I know? How can I know? Well, here's what God said to Abram. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, that's a cow for you non-Texans, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two. It's almost like Abraham, oh, okay, I see where you're going with that. Get all the animals. I see what we're going to do. He cuts the animals in two. He knows that there's about to establish a covenant. And he laid each half opposite each other, just like I was telling you, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Okay? It's because it was a bloody mess, right? Now, verse 12. And before I say this, let me, let me tell you that God is establishing this covenant. Abraham said, how can I know that these things will come to pass? How can I know deep into my heart and deep into my soul? How can I be satisfied that this will happen? And God said, we're going to cut a covenant. And God's like, uh, Abraham's like, okay. I mean, cutting a covenant with God must be a serious thing, okay? Think about all the things that he promised him. He promised him the descendants. He promised them the land. He promised, you can read through 15 through 17, really, all the things that God promised, actually even before then, all these things. And he's telling Abraham that you've got to, you know, you've got to, um, he go, whenever he talks about the circumcision, you need to do this, all your generations. You need to um, follow me. You need to obey me. And then he says, we're going to cut this covenant. And look what happens. This is really huge for us. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. What's he talking about? Egypt. Remember we talked about how God had told Egypt that would happen, I mean uh, Israel that would happen way, way, way before it did. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with so many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay? So God, so God calls Abraham... Um, tells Abraham all this stuff. But remember, he said, says that he made him fall into a deep sleep. And then in verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven 
and a flaming torch. And I'll just tell you right now, most scholars believe, most believe that the flaming torch, I'm sorry, that the um, smoking oven is God because God is a consuming fire. Can you guys get that picture? If you were to step inside of a smoking oven right now, you would be consumed. (laughs) And they also believe that the flaming torch is Jesus because he's the light of the world. Several times in scripture, he's he's likened to or described as a bright light, Uh, even thinking about uh, um, the three Jewish boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about what they saw in him. There was, was like this big fire in this oven, and he was in there. And they said, look, it looks like, the, like an angel, like a son of man in there. Think about the descriptions in Revelations. Uh, we had eyes like fire and, and you know, just sword coming out of his mouth, all that stuff. So, so get the picture. There appeared God and his son. Remember where, where Abraham was. He's overtaking a nap. And God and Jesus, the Son of God, show up. And it says that they passed between the pieces. Okay, God and the Son passed through the the pieces. God was making the covenant with Abraham. But Abraham took a nap. This is a beautiful picture. I'm going to get two people real quick. Um, I'll get two tall people so everybody can see. So if I can get Ben and I can get the two Clarks. (laughs) <laughs> two pa- tallest people in here, I guess. Okay, good Lord. Actually, I probably should have got the two shortest. <laughs> Little old me. Okay, so y'all stand right here, okay? We're going to pretend like these two are um, a couple old goats, all right? That's, that's, re- that's really why. I'm, I'm not liking how this is no. <laughs> Y'all are actually, y'all were one old goat, but now you're two old goats because we, we put you in the middle, okay? And you represent all the animals that um, um, they cut in half and put there. Okay, now I'm going to get, I'll get Rex and, and Nick. And I've done this before and some of you have seen it, but some of you haven't and that's why I want to do it again. <clears throat> These guys are going to make a covenant together. Nick and Rex, they've, they've agreed on something, whatever it is, you know. Um, maybe it's a flock of sheep. And they're about to make a covenant. And what they did is they took these animals, they cut them in half, and they're going to walk the pieces, just like we saw right here in, in, um, in Genesis. And what they would do is they would walk through those pieces, and one would walk one way around the pieces, and then the other one the other side, and they would come back together. And what that represents, symbolically, the reason they would do that is they're saying, we are now entering into a covenant together. And we're walking together in life. And we understand that at some point... Something in life may cause us to separate. But because we're in covenant, we have no doubt, no question, that one day we will come back together again. Do you guys see that? That's what was going on right here, okay? You guys can sit down. That is what is happening. This is the covenant that is making here. Now, you have to understand that Abraham is just a man, just like you and I are just men and women. We're just human. The covenant that God was making with Abraham, if you will remember, he said, this is an everlasting covenant. This is a covenant that is going to last a long time, and it's very serious, and it's got some pretty high standards on it. I think what God is saying here is there is no way in the world, Abraham, that you will ever be able to walk this covenant out and fulfill it. So just go take a nap. Go rest. Go take a nap. Go rest. 
what I will do is I will walk this covenant with the one that I know can fulfill it, my son. And it says that the two, the two, uh, the smoking oven and the flaming torch passed between the pieces, and they walked that covenant. You know, now I don't know what was going on with Abraham, but at some point he's probably like, "Man, what happened?" <laughs> you know, I thought I saw an oven floating in the air. <laughs> And a torch. Man, I'm hungry. I don't know. It smells like barbecue. Hickory? You know, I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he saw some footprints in the sand, and that's where that thing came from. You know, I don't know. Something happened here. But you know that that the covenant was made. And really, at this point, this is something that, that God guaranteed. How will I know? Because I didn't walk it with you. I made this covenant with my son. The reason that's important is because that's how we can know. That's how we can know when we call upon the name of the Lord that we are saved. That's how we can know that the precious promises of God that we find in Scripture do apply to us. That he does love us. That he is a good shepherd. That his his plans for us are to prosper us, not to harm us. That all good things work together for those who are in Christ Jesus. Probably not so for those who are outside of Christ Jesus, but those who are inside Christ Jesus, those who have allowed that covenant that God has walked with his son. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? I'm going to do this covenant thing again. Actually, I'm fulfilling it this time. Jesus is the one that died on the cross, you guys. We, we, we glory in, we boast in, we, as Paul says, we boast in, we worship, we praise according to the person and work of Jesus, not us. That's why Paul says we can't boast in anything. If I'm going to boast in anything, I will boast in Christ alone. You guys hear what I'm saying here? And we can see what this beautiful picture all the way back with Abraham. It's not like this was a whole new idea when Jesus came on the scene. This is what he was painting a picture of all the way back with Abraham. And it's one of the things I have no doubt that Paul was trying to get the Jewish people to understand about Jesus. Do you remember this whole thing? It all points to Jesus. You don't have to be circumcised. It's not going to hurt you. But overall, it's not going to help you either. It's faith. It's belief. And then the way he says it, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that walked the covenant. Listen, what we do, we don't realize it, but what we do is we walk this Christian life putting our faith in ourself. Our faith in our deeds. Our faith in really our flesh. And that's the whole point of the fulfillment of the new covenant, that we got away from the works of the flesh. We got away from having to kill animals and shed blood and all that stuff just to be made right with God. And even at the end of the day, it still didn't work, it says in Hebrews. So we depend upon the Lamb of God that was slain for the world, which is Jesus. His blood took care of all the need for us to work anything out. Now, I'm not, I'm not nullifying works because works are important. In other words, deeds, doing things right, doing things as inspired by the Holy Spirit to do. Obviously, we do that, but not so we can win favor with God, but because we have favor with God. This is huge for us, you guys. I believe if, if, a, if a body of believers 
the body in Christ in general, but surely the, a body of believers can grasp that and walk that out. I can't imagine our world's not turning upside down. And if our worlds can turn out upside down, our family's lives may turn upside down. And when a family's life starts turning upside down, a church's life is going to start turning upside down. And without sounding overly redundant, when a church's life turns upside down, a city can be transformed. Now, we don't think about a city transforming that much because we've got so much going on in our own lives. But listen, maybe we could catch a vision of that. Maybe Soma Church could catch a vision of radically transforming this city with the love of Jesus. Inspiring people to have faith, not in their religion, not in their works, not in, you know, whatever, but in Jesus. And then enjoying that. My soul finds rest in God alone, not, not me. My, I am satisfied. I am, you know, again, I, I, don't, I don't have to work. I can, I can do like Abraham did. I can go take a nap. Please don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean go around and do nothing for the Lord. You take that south pretty quick. But I can rest in him. How many times did Jesus say things like, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. I will abide. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. If you're in me, you're in the Father, and the Father is in you. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine. You ever thought about that? I'm, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Like, I'm the root here. I'm the vine, and you're, you're the branches. So the fruit comes from what? The branch? No. We're able to bear fruit because we're connected to the vine. In fact, he talks about how if you're a branch that's not bearing fruit, you must not really be attached or something. There's no life in you. You will be cut off and thrown into the fire. You know? It's about the Lord. It's about Jesus. Amen? My soul finds rest in God alone. Abraham rested. God did the work. We can rest because God and his son Jesus, has already, they've already done the work. It's interesting, isn't it? To look all the way back to Father Abraham, and it was more than just about having many sons. But it turns out the Lord was showing us all the way back there what posture he would like us to take. He wants us to sit down and just abide in the Lord. The wisdom that you're looking for comes from Christ. The discernment that you need to make that decision you're needing to make, it comes from the Lord. You know? You know, and I'm a due diligence kind of guy. And those of you who know me, it's like, yeah, you really are, like overboard. You know? Even in, this, in, in our building stuff and all that stuff. Guys, I mean, I've done more research than I, I'm like almost throwing up facts about commercial real estate and building. You know, it's like, blah. Like you never accuse me of not being thorough. But at the end of the day, is it not the Lord that's going to lead? I have to rest in, in a peace that he is the one leading that. Amen. Some of you guys are, are facing some of the biggest decisions, the biggest circumstances or whatever that you've ever faced. And maybe you're even frantic. Listen, um, take Abraham's posture. Go take a nap. Go, go rest. My soul finds rest in God alone. In him alone is my salvation. Amen? Let's stand.